This is The Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. The talk you are about to hear was given in July of 2010. Back in 1987, I wrote a script for the Equalizer television series entitled Sea of Fire. In it is a scene that is well known to Equalizer fans. A hitman played so wonderfully by the actor David Strathairn tells the story of his own near-death experience. In this episode of The Burning Zone, I tell the story of how that scene came into existence and where I got the idea for that dark vision. Along with the story comes a warning. And over the months, we've been dealing with some very difficult and some very controversial subjects. But in my opinion, uh, these are subjects that the church needs to be dealing with. They need to be aware of them, especially in what I consider and I believe to be these days that are the last days before the return of Jesus our King. Unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of people, and a lot of Christians are very much like this. You know, we, we really don't want to hear about things that are unpleasant. We only want to hear about things that make us feel good. We only want to hear things that promote what we consider to be our self-interest. And this is especially true, I think, for people who are in Hollywood. Uh, we are all here for one reason, that is we want to promote what we think we should be doing. Um, you know, unfortunately, that isn't the way God always works. And, uh, you know, the idea that uh, the Bible really isn't about just promoting our self-interest is a shock to a lot of people. And it certainly goes against some of the teaching that is in the church today. But, you know, uh, when Jesus was walking this earth, he really was in the business so often of disturbing people. A lot of what he said was extremely disturbing. You know, I think um, the church in America today has performed an amazing miracle. It has turned Jesus into someone whose major work in this world seems to be to bless and further our own selfish, selfish agendas. And uh, these include, unfortunately, at this particular time in history, political agendas, don't they? Uh, this study is not about politics, uh, but uh, so much is going on that perhaps a word or two needs to be said. You know, there are many people in this country right now who are uh, really angry about what is happening. They see America going through changes uh, that uh, are disturbing. They see what they consider to be our way of life vanishing before our eyes. Organized movements are rising up in order to try to deal with this. You know, in these movements, there are many Christians. Um, these are people who consider themselves to be patriots. They love America, and so do I. Uh, but something, in my opinion, is desperately and seriously wrong and is missing with all that is taking place right now. And what is missing ultimately dooms these movements to failure. Now, these are disturbing things for some people to hear, perhaps. In my personal Bible, Bible reading time each day, I've been reading, studying through the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel wrote during the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people. He was taken to Babylon with one of the first groups of captives from Judea. And during the captivity that he was, uh, he was involved in, God gave him amazing visions of the future. He also showed uh, Ezekiel terrible visions about the evil that was taking place right there at the highest levels in his own homeland back in Jerusalem. In one vision, God took him back to the temple in Jerusalem, and he showed him the evil being perpetrated in the very building that had been dedicated to the glory of God. Then he showed him a terrifying vision of judgment. If you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel 9, verse 1, I'm going to read a few verses here. 
Then he, speaking about God, called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, it's clear from what is being written here that these beings were supernatural beings. They weren't just men. Now, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. God's order was to kill all those who did not have that mark of sorrow for sin upon them. Question. If God were to give such an order today about this country, how many people would receive that mark? How many people are filled with sorrow? How many people mourn for the great evil that has been overwhelming this country for generations? Not just the evil of fiscal irresponsibility. The passage in Ezekiel makes it absolutely clear a broken heart over national sin means something very, very important to God. You know, many years ago I tried to assist a little ministry that had been established here in the entertainment business. It was the first of its kind. Its purpose was to meet the spiritual needs of professionals in Hollywood. There are people in this group who were involved at that time. It had almost no money, not enough to operate. So several of us flew back many years ago, and we went back east to try to help this little group raise money so that they could minister here. We went to some of the wealthy churches in a couple of cities. We spoke in those churches. We talked about the great spiritual emptiness that is here in this industry. We talked about the fact that so many here have never personally known a Christian. All they really know about Christians is what they see watching TV or getting hate mail. We were totally unsuccessful in our efforts. Well, the people in the churches wanted to hear our stories. They wanted to know if we knew any stars. Many were very angry with Hollywood. They wanted Hollywood to start making movies that were family friendly. They wanted the industry to meet their needs. In return, they would reward Hollywood at the box office. But as far as caring for the people in this industry... As far as mourning for their lostness, as far as mourning for the great evil that I believe is in control at the highest levels in this business, well, they simply didn't care. I'm sure many of those people are now deeply involved in the Tea Party. I will tell you what I believe. I believe that these movements are doomed to failure. Well, they may get people elected. But the sin that is drowning this nation will not be stopped in this way. That sin is drowning the church. That sin is drowning every other institution in this country, including the home. And I believe that God's judgment has only begun to fall. Do we care about the people around us? Do we share in some small way the broken heart of God over sin? Do we share His broken heart for those who are lost? You know, so many people 
who know little of the Old Testament, like to think of God as angry and judgmental. But that isn't the God I meet there. The God of the Old Testament is filled with the deepest sorrow. He is God. He is the God of the broken heart. His anger is justified, but he constantly searches to forgive and to restore. It's there throughout the Old Testament. To understand all this is especially important as we discuss the main topic of this evening. Last month we talked about the terror that comes in the night. An experience that in various forms is shared by many, many people. If we're not having such experiences ourselves, uh, do they really matter? Um, They should. They should matter to every one of us. I believe they are an integral part of the evil that is drowning this country right now. As a social scientist, David Hufford, we mentioned him last month, found in his study records of night assaults going back very, very far in the past. And based on what we discussed last month, I want to give you a brief case history. A traveling businessman is away from home. One night he has a horrifying experience. In the darkness, he is physically assaulted and overwhelmed by a devastating supernatural presence. Nothing like this has ever happened to him before. The thing crushes down on him until he can't breathe. Then strangely, it gives him a command. The command is, recite. What? Needless to say, he's terrified and he's confused. He doesn't know what it means. What does it mean? Recite, recite what? He doesn't know what to say. The thing is merciless. It crushes down harder and harder until he can't stand it anymore. He thinks he's dying. Suddenly from his mouth spew words that don't seem like they're coming from him at all. The experience ends, but the words that poured out stay with him. He's utterly shaken and terrified. He believes that he is demon-possessed. And whatever it was that attached to him... He can't get rid of it. His torment is so great and he is so desperate that he decides to commit suicide. This is a true story. If you met that man today, what would you tell him? Wouldn't you want to say that the name of Jesus and the power of his blood can free you from this awful evil spirit? Wouldn't you want to tell him that he doesn't have to be enslaved, that he can be free? The man was the prophet Muhammad. And what I've told you is what he described about his initial experience in meeting a being that he came to believe was the angel Gabriel. On his way to commit suicide, this being stopped him and told him that he was an apostle of God. And truly, the rest is history. In the Bible, we meet the angel Gabriel four times. Twice in the book of Daniel, when he brings the message from God to that Old Testament prophet, and twice in the New Testament. The first time is in Luke chapter 1, when he announces to the priest Zechariah that he is going to have a son, and that son will become John the baptizer. Then we see him once more when he announces to Mary that she is going to become the mother of Jesus. None of these important visitations bear any similarity to the experience of Muhammad. While the people who were visited may be frightened, and certainly those who saw Gabriel were frightened, 
In no case does Gabriel physically attack anyone. Instead, he speaks words to take away fear. Zechariah feels free enough to express doubts to Gabriel's face about the message itself. In no case does Gabriel force a person to do his bidding. The night terror of Muhammad changed human history. Millions of people have lost their lives because of it. And millions more will lose their lives. Are these visitations of terror important? Could there be people today who are having visitations that are just as important as those of Muhammad? And what should the church be doing about it? Back in the early 1970s, I had a contract to write a book about the history of occult manifestations. It was with a Christian publisher called Creation House. They no longer exist. One of my chapters dealt with the experience of Muhammad. In it, I said that it seems clear based upon the Bible that he was guided not by the angel Gabriel, but by an evil spirit that took that name. And certainly in 2 Corinthians 11:14, we know that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. My Christian editor at Creation House was incensed at what I had written. How dare I suggest that the founder of one of the world's great religions might have received his revelations from the powers of darkness. My book contract got tossed. As Christians, we'd better wake up. We'd better open our eyes. You know, recently I read a fascinating book entitled The Islamic Antichrist by Joel Richardson. I would recommend it to you highly. Richardson makes a vital point. God deeply loves all Islamic people. As Christians, our response to them needs to mirror his heart and not that of any news network or anybody we're reading on the Internet. Instead, unfortunately, instead of mirroring God's heart in this day, we respond with fear and rage, just as so many Christians responded and do respond toward Hollywood. In our selfishness, we become unwitting accomplices in Satan's great strategy for the world. We become powerless to do the work of Jesus and bear fruit for him. Speaking for the church of his day, St. Paul says, We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. By this he means his tactics and his strategies, both individually and collectively, for the enslavement of this earth. I fear that can't be said of the church in America in the 21st century. We are blind to the, Satan, the subtle strategies of Satan. And so many of them, them come packaged as gifts wrapped in pretty paper with beautiful bows. We're going to talk more about the gifts he really wants to give to the church in the months ahead. But we better be aware that his creatures are giving gifts to people every day. Many of those gifts are powerful and many of those gifts are real. But all of them enslaved. I believe that Muhammad received an amazing gift. And with that gift, he conquered much of his world. But in every culture, whether primitive or sophisticated, for all of time, Satan has been giving gifts. We could speak for hours about shamanism. Now the gifts of the shaman are attained. Around the world in cultures that have no contact with each other, the process is amazingly similar. Through one means or another, the apprentice shaman must travel out of his body into a strange world of a different dimension. In this world, he is attacked by beings that put him through a hellish initiation. 
Very often he is literally torn to pieces. He is beaten, slashed, gutted, his limbs ripped off. Often he is decapitated and his brain is removed and he feels all of it. Then the spirits put him back together again. He is given a spirit guide and supernatural powers, including what he believes to be the power to heal. The result of this soul rape is that he becomes the representative of evil spirits in his tribe. The author, Sudhir Kakar, an East Indian trained as a Western psychiatrist, wrote a fascinating book entitled Shamans, Mystics, and Doctors, a psychological inquiry into India and its healing traditions. In this book, he recounts the truly hellish experience of a man who desired to be a tantric healer of the so-called left-hand path. What this man was required to do is so physically disgusting, nauseous, and degrading that I can't relate it to you, and I have a rather strong stomach. The goal of this apprentice tantric healer was to receive power by entering into a personal relationship with a demoness called a Pishachini. In the process of performing the days-long committed prayer called a sadhana, the demoness comes to him in a very physical form as a beautiful young woman. She, she shares in the degrading acts that are part of the ritual. Finally, she has intercourse with him and tells him that now he belongs to her. He must always be faithful to her. Anytime she wants sex, he must give it. In return, she gives him supernatural power. He can read people and give them guidance and he can heal. Hundreds of people begin coming to him. His reputation grows, as does his wealth. Many of Satan's gifts relate to some form of healing. Because he knows that when we are sick and we can't find help, in our desperation we are most vulnerable to enslavement. And I believe so it will be in the days just before the return of Jesus. Right now the annals of night terror called alien abduction that we talked about last month are filled with accounts of people who were healed of some serious malady during their experience. But these healings were never performed simply for the good of the individual. The majority opinion of those who have experienced such healings is that they were performed so that the individuals could carry out tasks that had been assigned to them in this world. Satan does not give his gifts out of compassion, grace, and mercy. There is always a bloody hook. Why should we talk about all of these things in a Bible study about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Hollywood? There are several reasons. First, because in this day, so close to the end, all Christians need to be aware of Satan's devices. Second, as everyone knows, Hollywood is a world center for the communication of occult and supernatural stories. And stories do rule the world, don't they? Now, in my experience, Hollywood storytellers have almost no understanding about the reality of the spiritual world, which they often write about. Of all people, Christians in the entertainment industry need to be aware and on guard so that we're not involved in trivializing evil furthering the work of darkness and helping to promote enslaving lies. I'm afraid we're not quite so sensitive about such issues as we ought to be. We need a touch of reality. We need a clear vision about where the lords of darkness get their power. It is from their home, the kingdom of hell, where Satan rules. The kingdom that is the true center 
of the spiritual disease that is destroying humanity right now. I think there are many Christians who don't believe in a literal hell. They think that when the Bible talks about hell, that it's just being metaphorical. Surveys have shown that the overwhelming majority of people in the United States believe that they are going to heaven when they die. Almost no one thinks that he is going to hell. This fall we're going to begin studying the kingdom of heaven. But in preparation for that, I think it's vital that we understand all we can about the kingdom of hell and the amazing price that Jesus Christ paid so that we don't have to go there. As we look at that terrible kingdom, There's something important for us to remember. Hell is the center of God's wrath and judgment, but I believe it is also the center of his broken heart. God forbid that we should talk about hell without a touch of his great sorrow. Is hell real? Jesus believed so. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus said about hell. Matthew 5, verse 21. We're going to be in Matthew 5 for a few verses. Matthew 5, verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means worthless one, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Up to verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks up to a woman, at a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish and for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now go over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 6. Matthew 18, verse 6 says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. I'll go back to Matthew 7. I'll just read this brief couple of verses. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. 
For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer to you and say, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. It will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And finally, one last passage, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is one of the strangest parables that Jesus ever told. It's the only parable in which he actually names a person. The implication has been, and scholars believe, that it may not be considered a parable or just a story at all, that it may in fact be an actual happening. And with that story, Jesus gave the most solemn warning. I believe very much that if we could see the reality of hell right now and the great mass of humanity that is suffering there, we could never say the word hell again without our eyes filling with tears. Most of all, we would be desperately concerned that not one more soul go there. It's understandable that Satan does not want the world to believe in hell. And if we must believe in it, he doesn't want us to imagine that we might go there. Instead, let, let it become the butt of stupid jokes, stereotypes, and trivialization. Most of all, make sure that Christians remain ever fearful about mentioning it. Let them know that if they do so, they will be considered primitive, judgmental fanatics. Clearly, Jesus had no such fear. Back in the late 1980s, I was the co-executive producer and showrunner of the television series The Equalizer. Ran for four years on CBS and starred the wonderful actor, my friend Edward Woodward. We decided at one point that we wanted to do a, a, an episode about a street gang in New York that was terrorizing a high school. In the story, Robert McCall, the equalizer, takes on the task of turning these young men 
from their dangerous and destructive lives, uh, you know, into something totally different. It would be kind of, we, we viewed it as a kind of a scared straight story in an episode like that. A freelance writer was assigned. When the script came in, it was just abominable. Um, it didn't work, so I took on the task of rewriting it myself. It was what we call a page one rewrite. Uh, unfortunately, so I've had a number of experiences like that. Um, basically, you just start right at the beginning, all over again, throw the thing out, and keep going. You know, in this episode, uh, McCall does, the, he was doing the traditional things. I started writing it, writing it. Of course, you only had a couple of days to get it finished. You know, uh, he, I, in the episode, he, he takes the gang, the street gang, down to see an autopsy of a former gang member. And, you know, as I wrote this, I just felt like this isn't, this isn't enough. I mean, you know, it isn't, it isn't working. You know, I, I was so disturbed. But, you know, I, you know, I thought, well, street gangs today, they see death all the time, you know. I struggled with a script and I prayed. Then I remembered a story that I had read years before. I wrote a scene in the script such as probably has never appeared on television. This scene, I can tell you, broke every rule of TV writing. It was several pages long, and it was just one man talking. No cutaways, no nothing. It was a scene about a hitman who had been hit himself, shot in the head. It was about his journey into hell. I turned the script in on a Friday and thought, well, this is it. I've done a lot of stuff on this series, but I want to tell you something. I've, I've never, I'm never going to get away with this one. Not going to happen. It was a long weekend waiting as I knew that everyone was reading that script. I went in, you know, on Monday morning, and I was, oh, I was ready for battle. I was absolutely sure that the studio, Universal, and the network, CBS, were going to have my head. And this was after years of writing on the show and a lot of success. I was utterly shocked when I discovered that everybody loved it. What is wrong with this picture? It bothered me. They did. They loved it. And, you know, and, and I, was, I was tremendously, I was relieved. Suddenly our only problem was really finding an actor good enough to carry such a heavy cameo. Actor after actor was read in New York where we were casting. And we couldn't find anybody. It came to the day before it was supposed to shoot. I made the decision that if it couldn't be done right, I would just cut the scene. The last minute, we found our actor. And what a great actor he is. His name is David Strathairn. No one could have done that scene better than he did it. A few years ago, you may not know his name very well, but you saw him if you went to a film called Good Night and Good Luck. He played the lead character, the legendary news, newsman Edward R. Murrow. What David Strathairn did with that couple of pages is amazing. Someday I think they'll be releasing those other episodes and perhaps you'll get a chance to see it. He did our cameo. And the name of the episode became Sea of Fire. The true story upon which I based that scene I want to share with you right now. It happened to a man named Thomas Welch. He wasn't a hitman, far from it. It happened on July 1, 1924. Thomas Welsh lost both of his parents when he was 11 years old. He was raised by an aunt and uncle who were kind to him, but no one could replace his parents. 
At an early age, Thomas stopped believing in God. As a young adult, he had Christian friends who took him to church. He heard the message of Jesus many times and it never moved him. His heart was hard. He got a job at a sawmill in Oregon as an engineer's helper. What happened took place on his first day of work. The mill was sawing giant squares that were flumed down a trough of water to the Columbia River. There was a dam at the mill and a log pond. The trestle over the dam was 55 feet above the water. Thomas went out on the trestle to straighten out some timber that had become jammed, causing the conveyor to stop. Suddenly, he fell off the trestle between the timbers. An engineer saw him fall. He landed on his head on the first beam 30 feet down and then tumbled from one beam to another until he landed in the water and disappeared. The pond was 10 feet deep. The mill was shut down. There were 70 men working that day and all of them stopped to just join for the search for his body. It took them almost an hour to find him under the water. While that search was going on, this is what Thomas Welch was experiencing. These are his words. I was dead as far as this world was concerned. But I was alive in another world. There was no lost time. I learned more in that hour out of my body than I could ever learn while in this body. All I remember is falling over the edge of the trestle. The next thing I knew, I was standing near the shoreline of a great ocean of fire. It appeared to be what the Bible says it is in Revelation 21.8, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. It was the most awesome sight one could ever see this side of the final judgment. I remember more clearly than any other thing that has ever happened to me in my lifetime, every detail of every moment, when I, what I saw and what happened during that hour, I was gone from this world. I was standing some distance from this burning, turbulent, rolling mass of blue fire. As far as my eyes could see, it was just the same, a lake of fire and brimstone. There was nobody in it. I was not in it. I saw other people whom I had known that had died when I was 13 years old. One was an uncle of mine who had died of consumption. Another was a boy I'd gone to school with who had died from cancer of the jaw. He was two years older than I. We recognized each other even though we did not speak. They too were looking and seemed to be perplexed in a deep thought as though they could not believe what they saw. Their expressions were those of bewilderment and confusion. The scene was so awesome that words simply fail. There is no way to describe it except to say we were eyewitnesses now to the final judgment. There's no way to escape, no way out. You don't even try to think, look for one. This is the prison out of which no one can escape except by divine intervention. I said to myself in an audible voice, if I had known about this, I would have done anything that was required to escape from coming to this place. But I had not known. As these thoughts were racing through my mind, I saw another man coming by in front of us. I knew immediately who he was. He had a strong, kind, compassionate face, composed and unafraid, master of all he saw. It was Jesus himself. A great hope took hold of me. And I knew the, the answer to my problem was this great and wonderful person who was moving by me there in the prison of the lost and confused, judgment-bound souls. 
I did not do anything to attract his attention. But I said to myself, if he would only look at me and see me, he would rescue me from this. He could do it. He could rescue me from this place because he would know I never understood it was like this. He would know what to do. He passed on by. It seemed as though he would not look my way. But just before he passed out of sight, he turned his head and looked directly at me. That is all it took. His look was enough. In seconds, I was back and entering into my body again. It was like coming in through a door of a house. I could hear my Christian friends praying minutes before I could open my eyes or say anything. I could hear and I understood what was going on. Then suddenly life came into my body and I opened my eyes and spoke to them. It's easy to talk about and describe something you have seen. I know there is a lake of fire because I have seen it. I know Jesus Christ is alive in eternity. I have seen him. There were many witnesses to the miracle of healing that Thomas Welch experienced. It was written up with sworn statements by several of the witnesses, including a statement by a physician who attended him. After his terrible ordeal, Welch was taken into a hospital and his scalp was sewn back on. His broken body was sore all over and he was in bed for several days. All that time, he was talking to Jesus. The Lord told him that he had been spared to tell his story to the world. Thomas decided that he couldn't do that in a hospital bed. So he got up and left on his own. Wrapped in bandages, he went to his friend's house and pulled out all the stitches on his head with tweezers. There was no bleeding. His body had been healed. You can find Thomas Welch's story on the Internet if you search for Oregon's Amazing Miracle. Over the years, I have read dozens and dozens of such stories. Eyewitness accounts of people who were shown the reality of hell. It's important to remember that hell is not the lake of fire that is described in the book of Revelation. According to the Bible, God created the lake of fire as a terrible and eternal punishment for Satan and his lords of darkness. It wasn't created for people, but there will be many, many people who are cast into it. For all those lost ones, the kingdom of hell is a waiting place, an awful prison that holds them in Satan's power until the final judgment. Howard Storm was a professor of art at Northern Kentucky University. When he was 38 years old, he and his wife were leading a group of students on a tour of the art museums of Paris. He'd been having gastric pain, but the over-the-counter medications had been taking care of it. And one morning he was talking to a member of his group and suddenly it felt as though he had been shot in the stomach. But no one had shot him. He didn't know it. But the wall of his stomach had been perforated and acid was flowing into his abdomen. In agony, he was taken to a hospital. But it was a weekend and the ineptitude of the French medical system kept him from seeing a doctor for many hours. Finally, he was in such pain that he wa- all he wanted to do was die. He knew that was the only way to get relief. Storm did not believe in God. He didn't believe in an afterlife. He viewed such things as foolish fantasies. So in the hospital bed, he drifted into darkness, a sleep that he thought would lead to annihilation. He recounts what happened next in his book, My Descent into Death. I recommend it. I'm going to read some excerpts from it to you. 
After a moment of darkness, here is what happened to Howard Storm in his own words. Suddenly I was standing up. I opened my eyes to see why I was standing up. I was between two hospital beds in the hospital room. This wasn't right. Why was I alive? I had wanted oblivion, escape from the all-consuming, unbearable pain. Could this be a dream? I kept thinking this has got to be a dream, but I knew that it wasn't. I was aware that I felt more alert and more alive than I had ever felt in my entire life. All my senses were extremely vivid. Everything around me was alive. The linoleum tiles on the floor were slick and cool, and my bare feet felt moist and clammy against them. There was an object in the bed under the sheet. As I bent over to look at the face of the body in the bed, I was horrified to see the resemblance that it had to my own face. It was impossible the thing could be me because I was standing over and looking at it. It looked like my face, but it looked so meaningless, like a husk, empty and lifeless. Everything that was me, my consciousness, my physical being, was standing next to the bed. Off in the distance, outside the room in the hall, I heard voices calling. Howard, Howard. They were pleasant voices, male, female, young and old, calling me in English. None of the hospital staff spoke English so clearly. Beverly, his wife, who was sitting next to the bed, didn't seem to hear them. I asked who they were and what they wanted. Come out here, they said. Let's go hurry up. We've been waiting for you for a long time. I can't, I said. I'm sick. Well, we can get you fixed up, they said. Don't you want to get better? Don't you want help? I was afraid of those people who were calling me. The hallway looked strange as I moved closer to the door. I had a feeling that if I left the room, it might not be possible to get back. But I couldn't communicate with my wife. The voices said, we can't help you if you don't come out here. I needed surgery. I assumed they must be here to take me to my operation. I decided to follow them. I stepped out into the hall full of anxiety. The area seemed light, but very hazy. I couldn't make out any details. The people were off in the distance, and I couldn't see them very clearly. I could tell that they were male and female, tall and short, old and young, adults. Their clothes were gray and they were pale. As I tried to get closer to them, they withdrew deeper into the fog. So I had to follow. I could never get closer than ten feet. I had lots of questions, but they wouldn't answer anything. They just insisted that I hurry up and follow. They continued to repeat the promise that if I followed them, my troubles would end. We walked on and on. They insisted on hurrying to get to our destination. The fog thickened and became darker. I kept asking when we were going to get there. I'm sick. I can't do this. They became increasingly angry and sarcastic. The more questioning and suspicious I became, the more antagonistic and authoritarian they became. A terrible sense of dread was growing within me. Everything I had experienced before this was as a dream compared to the way I was now experiencing reality. I was frightened, exhausted, cold, and lost. As I walked, they moved around me, and their numbers were increasing. 
I knew that we had been traveling for miles, but I could look back and see through the doorway into the hospital room. The body was still there on the bed, and Beverly, my wife, was sitting there as though frozen. Suddenly I looked around, and I was horrified to discover that we were in complete darkness. The hopelessness of my situation overwhelmed me. I told the people to leave me alone, that I would go no farther, and that they were liars. I could feel their breath on me as they shouted and snarled insults, Then they began to push and shove me. I began to fight back. A wild frenzy of taunting, screaming, and hitting ensued. I fought like a wild man. As I swung and kicked at them, they bit and tore back at me. All the while, it was obvious that they were having great fun. Even though I couldn't see anything in the darkness, I was aware that there were dozens or hundreds of them all around and over me. My attempts to fight back only provoked greater merriment. I was aware that they weren't in any hurry. They were playing with me. Every new assault brought howls of laughter. They began to tear off pieces of my flesh. To my horror, I realized that I was being taken apart and eaten alive slowly for their entertainment. They didn't appear to be controlled or directed by anyone. They were a mob of beings totally driven by unbridled cruelty. While I couldn't see in the total darkness, every sound and physical sensation registered with horrifying intensity. The level of noise was excruciating. Countless people laughed, yelled, and jeered. In the middle of this bedlam, I was the object of their desire. My torment was their excitement. The more I fought, the greater their thrill. As I lay on the ground, my tormentors swarming around me, a voice emerged from my chest. It sounded like my voice, but it wasn't a thought of mine. I didn't know what it was saying. I couldn't believe it. I didn't say this. The voice said, pray to God. I remember thinking, what a stupid idea. That doesn't work. What a cop-out. Lying here in this darkness surrounded by hideous creatures, I don't believe in God. There is utter, uh, this is utterly hopeless and I am beyond any possible help whether I believe in God or not. I don't pray, period. The second time the voice spoke to me, Pray to God. It was recognizably my voice, but I had not spoken. Pray how? Pray what? I hadn't prayed any time in my adult life. I didn't know how to pray. The voice said it again. Pray to God. I wasn't sure what to do. Praying for me as a child had been something I watched adults doing. It was something fancy and had to be done just so. I tried to remember prayers from my childhood experiences in Sunday school. What could I remember from so long ago? I murmured a few lines, a jumble of the 23rd Psalm, the Star-Spangled Banner, the Lord's Prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance, and God Bless America. (laughs) To my amazement, the cruel, merciless beings tearing the life out of me were incited to rage by my ragged prayer. It was as if they were throwing boiling oil on me. They screamed, there is no God. Who do you think you're talking to? Nobody can hear you. Now we're really going to hurt you. They spoke in the most obscene language, worse than any blasphemy said on earth. But at the same time, they were backing away. I could still hear their voices, but they were getting more and more distant. I realized that saying things about God was driving them away. I became more forceful with what I was saying. In time, they retreated back into the distant gloom beyond my hearing. I knew they were far away, but they could return. 
lying there, torn apart inside and out. I knew that I was lost. I would never see the world again. I was left alone to become a creature of the dark. Then for the first time in my adult life, a very old tune from childhood started going through my head. It was my voice, but it sounded like a little boy singing the same line over and over. The child that I had once been was singing full of innocence, trust, and hope. Jesus loves me. There was only that bit of the tune and those few words that I could remember. Was it possible that somewhere out there in that vast darkness there could be something good? That someone might love me? I didn't have any theological interest about what it meant. It was simply a spontaneous recollection from my Sunday school days. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I desperately needed someone to love me. Someone to know I was alive. A ray of hope began to dawn in me, a belief that there really was something greater out there. For the first time in my adult life, I wanted it to be true that Jesus loved me. I didn't know how to express what I wanted and needed, but with every bit of my last ounce of strength, I yelled out into the darkness, Jesus, save me! I had never met anything more strongly in my life. Far off in the darkness, I saw a pinpoint of light like the faintest star in the sky. I wondered why I hadn't seen it before. The star was rapidly getting brighter and brighter. At first I thought it might be something, not someone. It was moving toward me at an alarming rate. As it came closer, I realized that it was, I was right in its path and I might be consumed by the brilliance. I couldn't take my eyes off it. The light was more intense and more beautiful than anything I had ever seen. It was brighter than the sun, brighter than a flash of lightning. Soon the light was upon me. I knew that while it was indescribably brilliant, it wasn't just light. This was a living being, a luminous being approximately eight feet tall and surrounded by an oval of radiance. The brilliant intensity of the light penetrated my body. Ecstasy swept away the agony. Tangible hands and arms gently embraced me and lifted me up. I slowly rose up into the presence of that light and torn pieces of my body miraculously healed before my eyes. All my wounds vanished and I became whole and well in that light. More important, the despair and pain were replaced by love. I had been lost and now was found. I had been dead and now was alive. I have read hundreds of reports of what are called near-death experiences. Satan has many lies that he wants you to believe about death. The first one is that there isn't a hell. And if there is one, only Hitler and a few other people are going to be going there. You know, uh, he wants you to think that everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. You know, he wants you to think that all religions are just different paths up the same mountain heading for the same destination. God wouldn't condemn a person to hell. Within the literature of near-death experiences, there seems to be evidence to support all of these lies. In that literature, so very few people report experiences of hell. So many report a positive, wonderful experience traveling up a tunnel into a loving presence of light where they are validated no matter how they have lived or what they believe. We're going to deal with those lying manifestations next month, and there are some very chilling answers to them, believe me. What you've heard tonight is the most serious warning. Hell is real. If you go there, it will be the most real thing that you will ever experience. 
If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, death is the door to eternal darkness. It's the door to eternal and utter hopelessness and endless suffering. That future does not have to be yours. Jesus came and died to pay the price for your sins. He suffered so that you wouldn't have to. Next month, we're going to look at what he did. But listen to these words that he spoke in John 3:16, verses 16 through 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you do not know Jesus, if he is not your Savior and your Lord, but you want him to be, I'm going to read a beautiful prayer written by a pastor named Dr. Lewis Evans Sr. Pray these words in your mind after me. Jesus, I believe you died and rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. Lord Jesus, I hear you standing at the door of my heart and knocking. I now open the door and ask you to come into my life. Take control of my life. Forgive my sins and save me. I repent of my sins and now place my trust in you for my salvation. Lord Jesus, I accept your free gift of eternal life. And I ask you to give me a new beginning today. As the new life which you give to me. I will give that life back to you to use in whatever way you see fit. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Amen. And if you know Jesus Christ and eternity is secure for you, I have a question for you. What is the purpose for your life right now? In this kingdom of Hollywood or wherever you are, why are you here? Why are you here? Thanks for listening. That's a very serious question, isn't it? How will you spend the rest of your life? What will be your purpose for living? And that prayer I prayed, if you prayed it and asked Jesus the Messiah to be your Lord, if you asked him to forgive your sins and give you his eternal life, would you write and tell me? I'd like to send you something to help you along this new journey. My email is colemanluck at gmail.com. History had a beginning, and truly for each one of us, history in this world will have an end. What happens after that is your choice.